If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. It's just this this great moment of uncertainty because the world, that sort of stable imperial system that colonial subjects have been used to, yeah. is suddenly up for grabs. That was Yasmin Khan on the impact of the Second World War on India and its people. There were lots of people being injured uh, in a very gradual process. It wasn't just um, big explosions or, you know... Uh, inundations where lots of people lost their lives. And that was Daniel Blackie talking about the dangers of the mining industry. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our first podcast of July 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. As historian Yasmin Khan points out in her new book, The Raj at War, India's volunteer army in the Second World War was the largest in history. Its ranks were made up of more than two million men. And the mobilisation of these people, and the wider political and cultural consequences it caused, were to have a transformative effect on the nation. 
Our reviews editor, Matt Elton, paid a visit to Yasmin recently to find out more. How did the war start for India and its people? I think, um, really, the, the biggest crunch point for, for South Asians because was the entry into the war without necessarily being consulted. And this is a political issue because the feeling was that Gandhi and the, um, the leading members of the Indian National Congress, the leading Indian political representatives, should have been able to acquiesce or to agree to, to be entered into the war. And the fact that it's done through the authority of the Viceroy, through, um, if you like, central decree, um, creates an, an uneven situation which puts people's backs up, to put it, you know, <laughs> no mildly, other way. Yeah. No, to put it mildly, I mean, yeah. it creates an uneven um, context. At the same time, there were plenty of people who were anti-fascist and very concerned about the rise of Hitler and about the um, German expansionism in, in, in Europe. There were plenty of people, including Nehru himself, who were very um, worried about fascism, who wanted to defeat fascism, and who were quite supportive of some of the British war aims. But what they wanted to do was square that with their own... Uh, nationalism and anti-imperialism. They wanted to try and and, and keep the two in in, in relation. They felt that they their own interests, their own voices, their own sort of democratic rights had been overruled by the central decision. Mm. I mean, how close was India to independence at this stage? Mm, it's a good it's a good question because although there had been a, a commitment to uh, eventual independence, there hadn't actually been any date ever given or any time frame or time plan so there'd been devolution at the regional level so at provincial level there were provincial assemblies where where um indian politicians could hold power and they 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 had decision-making powers on a whole load of, of sort of domestic issues okay. if you like yeah and municipal issues but they didn't have what they didn't have was real power at the center and that's right. what that's yeah. and when it comes to defense and to international relations and to big questions of um, decision-making around international relations and defence, that's what, that's what was missing, for, mm. particularly for, for Nehru and the leaders of the International Congress. So there wasn't any real sense that it could be independent. It was something that was going to happen in the future, perhaps. Yeah, but something not, that was going not, to happen in the future, yeah, but not then. Given that, I mean, how, how far could imperial subjects see war as being a just war? Is it something that they could they could possibly have done? I mean, I think it very much depended on people's context and location, experience, education. You know, to take an example of a character who features quite prominently in the book, Krishna Menon, who is based in London and has been fighting um, fiercely for Indian independence for, for, for a number of years, heading up the India League in London. He, he does that, but at the same time, he's deeply committed to um, the defence of Britain and London. You know, he becomes an air raid warden. Um, he's he's sort of in the vanguard of anti-fascist campaigns. He's very, very sort of committed to the war as a just war. So there are individuals who, because of their, particularly because of their politics or because of their travel and so on, who, who, who feel very strongly about it. Um, for many others... It's a war that is just very um, un- unknown, I think. Mm. It's very far away um, for, for, for a lot of Indian um, peasants, urban workers, um, people of 
who've not had that exposure to the big cities and to travel into newspapers, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not really known what's happening, but there's a great transformation that's taking mm, place yeah. and there are people fighting and there are soldiers going off. But people don't necessarily understand the mechanics and the details and exactly what it's going to mean for them. Sure. And so then they they suddenly faced by these these changes that start to happen, like price rises and, and so on. Yeah. But they're not necessarily um, well informed initially about the cause. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned recruitment there. What what challenges were faced by that process? Well, initially, I think it seems quite straightforward because there's always been these parts of South Asia. Um, particularly in the northwest, uh, around some of the areas that make up Pakistan now, Punjab and the northwest frontier province, um, some of the bits around where, where Delhi is now, Uttar Pradesh, and, and, and um, those those regions. But there's always been plenty of men who um, whose families have served the Raj for generations. They're used to fighting. They um, they know what's expected of them. They understand the recruitment methods. They understand the promotion policies and and. They, they're, they're loyalist, mm. um, for want of a better word, uh, and they, they, they sign up, you know, they join. This is a volunteer army, it's not conscription, yeah. but they do go forward and they join up and, and, and they are getting a pay packet in return and the chance to travel and fight. Now, the problem sets in when more and more men are needed, mm. and India is this vast resource of manpower, and so the army grows and grows and grows very quickly you know mm. so 20,000 men a month coming into the army in, crazy, yeah. in, in, in the 1940s and so it spreads out that recruitment into regions of India that are less accustomed to um, to the to the military less mm. accustomed to military service to new recruits come in from towns um, whose parents have no prior connection to the military who don't know really what military service involves um, but are drawn in through high wages through steady wage and through the opportunities for travel and adventure and sometimes um, sometimes because of push factors like they're running away from home right they want to get away from their parents so there's lots of reasons people come into the military and that creates this very kind of big complex organization which is made up of so many different types of people and people Mm. from all over India and in the end you know you have you have one of the second or third largest area is the of southern India is sending troops, right, and so yeah. you have you have a very different type of mix to any previous Indian army that's existed. What were the experiences of women while their sons and husbands were away? Mm, that's something else which I was really keen to try and explore mm. in the book, and I do talk about in the book um, because the sort of bits and pieces of evidence that we have suggest that it was really tough for women, yeah. mm. partly because. For a lot of um, peasant farming women, their daily lives suddenly get a lot harder. You know, they've got to they've got to work in the fields as they always have done, but now they don't have the help at home with, with the men folk. They've got to look after the children. Sometimes women are under pressure from their from their in-laws because it's quite traditional for Indian women to move in with their in-laws once they were married. But if they didn't have children yet, um, they're, they're in a very tricky position. They're having to do all these domestic tasks and, and chores, they're not necessarily getting letters or information. And um, often, because of this, there seems to have been resistance from women to, to their husbands or, or brothers or sons joining up. Um, particularly in, in Nepal, we have evidence of, of women not wanting 
meant to go away. People have talked to me about Punjabi folk songs where women sang laments about the trains taking their sons and brothers God, away yeah. from them. And so, um, you know, there, there may have been pride in <laughs> military service and so on, and some of the more... Um, the areas where the martial races were recruited from women were more kind of brought into um, associations that might might sort of support fighting men. But compared to, say, women in Europe, there was far less of a network or a support system for these yeah. women. Okay. Yeah. Um, and and sometimes you know they didn't they didn't know what had happened. Their men disappeared. They didn't know when they were coming back. They didn't know where they were, and they're really left sort of wondering what's going on just had to wait and just, just had to wait yeah, yeah so yeah. many people in the 1940s are just waiting for news or for somebody to come home and awful, I think it's the yeah. same in India yeah, as elsewhere yeah, yeah. I mean to what extent did people see the war as being potentially a good thing in terms of economics did people hope it would bring them um well yeah, I suppose yeah, yeah. Um, initially what you see is wage rises India's gone through depression, like elsewhere in the world, in the 1930s. There's been a lot of unemployment, um, a slump in wages. And in the 1940s, factories go into boom time. India's producing textiles, it's producing uniforms, gunny bags, um, parachutes, (laughs) Bren guns. There's a lot of things that are starting to be produced in India for the war effort. And um, men and women are being employed in the in the factories in record numbers, steel, electricity, hard, heavy materials as well. So it seems seems initially pretty good. And yeah. for some of the industrialists, it is, it's, a, it's a great time. The big industrial firms of India, some of which are still household names in South Asia today, mm. you know, they really make their fortunes in the 1940s. But for a lot of the labourers and workers in those factories, they seem at first to have a great pay packet Mm. but then they go home they go to the market and the prices are starting to rise because of inflation and so they what they think they're earning isn't worth what they thought what it used to be worth worth. and so it's this mismatch between the two is is the real problem that starts to set in so Mm. they so there are you know initially there's a kind of there's a boom because there's work yeah and there are particular corners and pockets where people do well um, and certainly some of the big factory owners do well. But I think for your average labourer, it's a bit of a sort of Faustian yes. <laughs> pact. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've touched on this a couple of times. 1942 was obviously yeah. a big turning point. Um, what were the major events that shaped it? So Pearl Harbour, I suppose, was a big, was a big event. Pearl Harbour's the big event. Yeah. Um, and for for the Raj, the, the fall of Singapore, mm. because it's it's an interconnected world. It's all part of the British Empire. And um, then the um, assault on Burma, and the, the sort of the moving into Burma of the Japanese, which takes a number of months. Hmm. But during that time, there's just this fallout for India because you have um, refugees coming into India from these regions, Europeans and Indians. You have the threat of Japanese um, uh, navy in in Indian Ocean waters. Yeah. And you know, for a time, you have this this moment when when commanders like Bill Slim and and leaders like Gandhi all kind of think for a few weeks this is it we're going to lose yeah, you know, yeah. the, the Japanese are going to be in, in India it's very real it was just it so very close real. Yeah, it's very yeah. close and you do have um, moments when areas are bombed along the eastern coast of India in, in Bengal um, um, Vizag which is down near Madras okay. um, yeah. uh, uh, in Ceylon there's a number of uh, bombs and uh, 
around Chittagong as well, the port up, up in Bengal. So there's, there's, you know, there's, there's quite a bit of bombing. Mm. Um, but there's also just this sort of sense of how far is this going to go? Yeah. Um, is, is, nobody ever thought, I don't think, within the military command that India would fully fall to the Japanese. Mm. But I think they thought that some of those eastern ports and they, those eastern areas and regions, Bengal and places sort of abutting Burma, yeah. They might, they yeah. might, and and it's just this this great moment of uncertainty because the world, that sort of stable imperial system that colonial subjects have been used to, yeah. is suddenly up for grabs. It's, it seems all everything's in turmoil. It's yeah. complete change. So anything could happen potentially. Yes. Well, I think I think um, there is there is that sense of of. The British system might not have been liked, but it was no. It was a reliable it was system. Yeah. It was a familiar yeah. system, and people are very uncertain. So they're doing things like holding on to currency, um, coins, all the lots of savings deposits get get withdrawn from banks, and people start hoarding silver coin. And they're all signs of deep, deep anxiety mm. and, yes. and worry. Yeah, um, okay. as people feel that they, they, they the whole kind of um, political sort of state that they live in might might start might implode as yeah. it has done in Southeast Asia yeah and yeah. so many so so many Indians um are connected to Southeast Asia through work and through trade mm. and through travel that when it's their kin it's their brothers and cousins and friends who have already seen the Japanese invading so it's coming so the stories sense. are coming back and yeah. the rumors are coming back yeah. so even though the British have got propaganda sort of trying to combat that fear there's a lot of anxiety because they you know people have seen what's happened and they've heard about things already yeah. and that's coming coming filtering back into india yeah. what sense do we get of the experiences of people who lived in the cities do we get a sense of what their life was like yeah. while all this was going yeah. on i mean the, it depends again on who you were yeah. i mean i think the thing that is clear that compared to britain the extremes of wealth and poverty were just very 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 different in india where you just have people who are living very well right side by side with people who are really you know on the verge of starvation so you have, you have these great extremes of wealth and poverty so in the cities you could some people were living quite well i mean the, the jazz was booming you have um a, a lot of live music going on some of the cities have you know there's parties happening although they're trying to kind of control control that but there's there's, there's a lot of Parties going on in hotels, um, a lot of troops, European, American around, and so there's quite a lively sort of life going on around. Um, some of the shopkeepers are selling trinkets. You've got um, tourists. Yeah. So there's those sorts of things that are sort of happening, but at the same time, on the outskirts, the, the cities are sort of mushrooming. You've got more and more people kind of trying to come in and make wages coming off the land and coming towards the cities. And I think that's a phenomenon that's happening everywhere. I think Africa, you also see the same in, in cities like Lagos and um, in, in North Africa also. You, you see people kind of coming towards these, yeah, these yeah. urban places yeah. in, time of, in time of war because they, they want to make some... They want to make a quick buck. <laughs> yes, yeah. I suppose while we're talking about cities, we should talk about Bombay. Yes, and the yeah. The experiences that happened there. Yeah. Um, for people who may not know, what was what was going on there? What well, was that like? Bombay is the major port of embarkation um, if, and also for arrivals of um, soldiers, both from Britain and also from the USA. So it's the first place that 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 soldiers tend to. Mm. Um, disembark I mean they do also come into other ports but 
Bombay's particular role like that. And so um, amazing similarity in the accounts of some of the soldiers <laughs> because they, they all write about how they're sort of overwhelmed by the smells and the sounds and the colours of Bombay and um, quite often you know, spend the first few days just sort of wandering around whilst they're waiting for their onward, yeah. onward travels. And so around them grow up all these sort of networks of clubs and bars, there's prostitutes, there's um, rickshaw drivers and um, trinket sellers. And they're all trying sort of in this big hubbub around the the soldiers. We should talk about prostitution specifically. How how did that cause tensions between the civilian population, the army and the government, I Mm. suppose? Well, I mean... Prostitution is as old as the hills and clearly follows armies or is always something that happens wherever armies are stationed, particularly if they're stationed near civilian populations. But in India in the 1940s, it's really, really major problem and something it's quite easy to trace in the historical record because it's something that the armies were directly tracking. <laughs> For instance, um, in the American archives, there's a survey sent out to men stationed in India or in China, Burma, India theatre, which asks, you know, have you had sex with a prostitute whilst you were in, whilst you were stationed out in this theatre? And sixty percent of people <laughs> said yes. So you know, we you're really facing a situation where there's men who are away from home for, for many years at a time, and um, they're they're very far from home, and they're often waiting for a long time before they see combat because. India's this large training ground. There's lots of soldiers around, so they've got time. They've got a lot more money and spending power relative to the local economy mm. than they would normally have. And so this all kind of creates this cocktail of <laughs> this sort of lethal cocktail where um, in the Indian cities you see um, definite evidence of, in- of increased um, prostitution. It's not, um, it's not allowed. You know, it's not actually legal mm. <laughs> by the military both the, the British and, and the American militaries both have quite strict regulations and they have out-of-bounds areas and areas that men aren't allowed to go. But these are not followed, let's say, to the letter. And um, it becomes an issue for nationalists in South Asia who, who are really kind of at the most extreme are really um, use this as an example of, of degeneracy and of, of the, the, the kind of downfall of Asia at the hands of the white man, if you like, and so on. Um, but there's a lot of consternation within the militaries too, mainly because of, of disease. And they're very worried about venereal disease. They're worried about um, men being put out of action because of, because of disease. And so um, at times there's, there's a lot of money spent, a lot of time spent sort of policing, policing certain areas of the cities, Calcutta in particular, to try and um, clamp down on this problem. But it is, it's, particular, it's a particular issue in India in the 1940s. And I think it exceeds a, a lot of other military theatres because of that kind of combination of, of yeah. reasons that it's I really set out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we talked about some of the strains and obviously uh, food and famine was yeah, a major one. Yeah. Um, what caused these tensions and where was it particularly keenly felt, I suppose? Um, the, well, the famine of 1943 is, is the biggest issue, I think, that India faces in the 1940s. It's, it's the worst catastrophe that India faces in the 1940s. Um, Certainly, in terms of deaths, you know, goes far beyond the partition of 1947. It's it's a it's a real really horrible cataclysm. 
And there's quite a lot written about it. And we do know as historians, there's quite specific books about it have been written. But I think what I'm trying to do is set it within the broader um, narrative of the war. And in the book, I, I talk about the famine within that wider sort of spread of things that happened during the 1940s. And one of the things which became apparent to me is that there's the famine in, in Bengal when, when up to three million people starve to death because they just don't have enough food for whatever reason. But actually throughout all of India in the 1940s, food shortages, um, hunger, um, sort of calorific intake, um, food availability, all those things are, are under attack. You know, people are, there are more and more hungry people, I think in the 1940s in India. Now, they might not be on the verge of starvation, although there are starvation incidents elsewhere, and there are districts, for instance, even at the start of the war in Punjab, there's there's a terrible famine, one of the worst famines in that region since the 19th century. Um, in Assam, there are certainly starvation, starvation deaths. In Orissa, there are starvation deaths. So there's other parts of India which are also really suffering. And in Bengal, it's not, things aren't sort of instantly solved after 1943. So I think it's stretching the duration of that of that famine and yeah. contextualising it within the 1940s as a sort of longer um, affliction. But the famine itself is, is a particular sort of moment of horror, I think. Mm. And, it's a, and it's a horror for everybody. It's a horror for the British administration who don't see it coming. Mm. Um, and, and it's horrible for some of the soldiers who are stationed there, Indian and British and American soldiers, who see starving people on the streets of Calcutta mm. and are kind of questioning what they're what their role is and how they can help and you know what's what's the purpose of this of, of their position how can they how yeah. can they actually can get help out to, to these people on the mm-hmm. streets um, and it's a it's a it's a really it's a really shocking tragedy that still I think people haven't quite got to grips with in understanding what happened or or how it could have been different yeah but also that hunger was a a more widespread it was endemic exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah a couple of ways in which you touch on that this whole period may have been beneficial to civilians. I mean, can we say that it was beneficial in terms of medical developments that yeah, were caused yeah, by the war? Yeah, I think certainly there was a lot of scientific and, and medical um, progress made during the war. And Bill Slim, who, who famously wrote sort of, um, Defeat into Victory, you know, tells the account of how Burma is reconquered. He puts a lot of emphasis on the, the transformation of of military fitness and of, of medicine and certainly combating malaria and combating um, um, disease in the jungles of, of Burma and, and North India is a, is a major factor in, in, in winning that war. But some of those things had trickle down effects to the civilian population. You, you do have the development of new tech, sort of new serum, new, um, new medicines, you know, the widest spread distribution of quinine and of, of, um, anti-malarial medicines of, of some vaccinations and some other kinds of, of, of things um, uh, for instance limbs you know artificial limbs oh yeah um, yeah there is there's a factory that's set up for making artificial limbs for soldiers who've lost their limbs but that's rolled out and expanded to the to the general population so some of this um kind of modern um Technologies and changes which accompany the war have a kind of knock-on effect into Indian Indian mm-hmm. healthcare and cities. And I think um, you know the training up of nurses and the training for doctors. Some of those things could could be filtered back in 
after the end of the war. Okay. And, yeah. and Nehru definitely, uh, I think, describes it as sort of the best aspect of war, the, med- the medical yeah. transformation that occurs. So it's, it's one of the more positive aspects. But I think most of those benefits felt sort of rather later on, yeah. not, not actually during... Okay, um, they had their time later yeah, they on. they probably... Yeah. They, sort of filtered back after 45, yeah, I think, you know, when, cool. when demobilisation happens. And some of those doctors and dentists also, you know, the army trains up dentists for the first time. Wow. I mean, takes, has sort of serious dental core for the first time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, they're, they're kind of, that has a, you know, yeah. a knock-on yeah. effect. Neuro, neuro, um, medicine and, and uh, neurosurgery, cool. all sorts of yeah. things. Um, to what extent did the war change the Raj? I think by the end of the war, very few people in the Raj think that it can continue to exist. I think it completely um, undermines the rationales and the purposes and the legitimacy of the Indian yeah. Raj. And really, it delivers decolonization. But I think the nationalists are extremely important in that too. Gandhi and the Indian National Congress and their campaigns mm. have, have also played a key role in, in doing that. But it's it's the two together. It's that kind of combination of the two. Yeah. It just means that in 1945, I think everybody knows that the writing is on the wall and that the Raj has got to go yeah. and that it's going to go. It's just a question of what kind of constitutional settlement can be put in place. It's just how it how, how it, it how it can yeah. be how yeah. the, it can be engineered and how the mechanics are going to work of this mm. thing. But mm. everybody knows it's going to it's got to go. And and the you know the British government. Um, and the British people are not committed to staying in India anymore. Mm. They're not, they don't want to be there <laughs> anymore. Yeah, no. yeah. And, and financially, it doesn't make sense anymore either. I mean, mm. the, the, um, Britain actually sort of owes, Brit- owes India money at the end of the world. There's the sterling balances, which is basically money kind of owed to India for, for war expenses. Yeah, okay. Um, and so the whole sort of settlement that the, British Empire in India was based on no longer holds yeah. the whole fabric of it has has given way and there's no possibility of it continuing I think so as as the war draws to an end to what extent is the feeling that um it's somehow remote this success that's felt in Europe it's sometimes yes. somehow not yeah. felt in India um I think it's different for soldiers I mean of course anybody in the armies is, is elated I mean they're thrilled they they means they've won um they've done what they set out to do they've They've defeated the Japanese and, and the Germans. They've um, kind of can go home. Mm. And that's an enormously important yes. thing. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. They can go home and mm. they can they can see their families again, which they often haven't done for many years. Um, but for, for the general population, it's far more unclear what the victory is because there's so much uncertainty about what the future will hold constitutionally. You know, who's now going to hold the reins, there's all these problems breaking out between the Muslim League and the Indian National Congress and between different factions. There's a lot more interreligious violence than has ever been the case sort of erupting. Mm. And um, and it's not really clear sort of what victory is going to deliver because um, you know, if it's a war fought for freedom and democracy, <laughs> then people want to know mm. what kind of freedom they're going to get and what what. So, so India's in a bit of limbo. I think between forty-five and forty-seven, they're very dangerous and sort of tragic years, really, because they're time when a better settlement could, might have been 
thrashed out. Yeah. Um, and all the time, the tension is mounting and the fears are mounting and the kind of anxieties are building up to this point where you get this explosive violence in 1947 mm. with the with the partition. Yeah. So um, so it's there are celebrations and there is victory parade in Delhi and there there are there is relief. I think that the world's not at war anymore. But it's not unmitigated. It's, there's still a sort of anxiety about what's next. If this book could change readers' view of this period and this country and this people, kind of, in, like, how would you like that? that yeah, to I think I think um, really I would like people to um, understand the the vast contribution that India made to. Them the Second World War, I think from a British perspective, we completely forget often the imperial contributions. And um, But I think those contributions go far beyond the role of servicemen and far beyond the role of soldiers. You know, it was about really kind of calling on a whole country's resources and, and supplies and infrastructure to support the British at that time. And I think that's a really important aspect. And I think from, from the other side, on the Indian side, I think... There's a lot of people who are involved in that war who um, have sort of slipped through history yeah. writing, you know, whose who's contrib- who's sort of roles and contributions haven't really been thought about. And I think that involved, includes you know, the non-competence that I talked about, sort of people working on military bases like tailors mm. and mechanics and women who were nursing and, um, and people who were driving cars and things. And they weren't, they weren't necessarily um, involved because of very clear ideological commitment um, but I think their lives are still important mm. and we still sort of should really consider what their role in this time meant. That was Yasmin Khan. Her book, The Raj at War, A People's History of India's Second World War, is due to be published in the UK in a couple of weeks by Bodley Head. And in the US it's going to be published in September by Oxford University Press with the different title of India at War. You can read more from Matt and Yasmin in the July issue of BBC History magazine, which is now on sale. Also in this month's edition, there are articles on the Black Death, Genghis Khan, the Battle of Britain and the Reformation, among other things. You can get hold of our July issue now in all good newsagents and digitally. And for this issue, we're also trying out a new service whereby you can enjoy audio versions of the articles. These will be available to listen to on the iPad and iPhone versions, and you can also download the articles for free from the website historyextra.com forward slash July audio. And Yasmin Khan is also one of the speakers at our History Weekend in Malmesbury this October. You can find out more about the event and our companion weekend in York at historyweekend.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com history extra. Just go to Indeed.com history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We took it all. 
we brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son? They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma McFarlane. Sir Nicholas Winton, who organised the rescue of hundreds of Jewish children from the Holocaust in 1939, has died at the age of 106. Sir Nicholas was labelled, quote, Britain's Schindler for saving the lives of 669 children destined for Nazi concentration camps by sending them from occupied Prague to London by train. The then stockbroker set up an office in a hotel in Prague and worked to find British families willing to put up £50 to look after the boys and girls in their homes. A 1938 Act of Parliament permitted the entry to the UK of refugee children under the age of 17, as long as money was deposited to pay for their eventual return home. Winton's efforts were not publicly known for almost 50 years, According to BBC News, more than 370 of the children Winton saved have never been traced and do not know the full story. Winton's family said he died peacefully in his sleep at Wexham Hospital in Slough. In other news, a pair of Queen Victoria's cotton underpants with a 45-inch waistband are to be sold at auction. According to BBC News, the pants, embroidered with the Royal VR monogram, are being sold in Wiltshire on behalf of Yesterday's World Museum in Sussex. The pants, which are in, quote, excellent condition, are from the last ten years of Queen Victoria's life. Auctioneer Richard Edmonds said he measured the waistline to date the underwear to about 1891. He said, earlier in her life she was slimmer, but her pants got bigger as she got older. The 125-year-old pair of pants was bought by Yesterday's World Museum from a descendant of one of Queen Victoria's ladies-in-waiting. The pants are expected to sell for several thousand pounds. Meanwhile, the former Tuscany residence of Napoleon's sister, Eliza Bonaparte, has gone on sale for upwards of €5 million. The luxury four-floor cliff-top villa near Livorno is part of a larger complex built as a fortification for the defence of the city in the mid-1400s by a Florentine architect. The famous artist, sculptor and scientist Leonardo da Vinci lodged in the dwelling in 1502 as a military engineer while designing the great walls that still surround the gardens of the estate. Today, the villa boasts five bedrooms with ensuite bathrooms and views over the Mediterranean Sea. It is expected to sell for between 5 and 10 million euros. You can take a look inside the villa by checking out our photo gallery at historyextra.com. Thanks for that, Emma. Now, the life of a miner during the Industrial Revolution was not an easy one. 
with dangerous conditions and long, arduous hours. Many miners died in a series of high-profile accidents, but what about those who survived? That's the subject of a major new research project investigating the lives of miners who experienced disabilities and looking at what happened to them next. Matt Elton spoke to Daniel Blackie, one of the project's researchers, to get an insight into what they've discovered. What we're looking at is disability in British coalfield societies uh, during the late 18th century, the 19th century and the first half of the um, 20th century up until the uh, establishment of the National Health Service and the um, nationalisation of the coal industry. Uh, and what we're trying to do really is really try to understand how understandings and experiences of disability um, were constructed in, in, in coalfield communities. So, yeah, we, we, what we're trying to do is really uncover the uh, fairly hidden history of disabled people in uh, a very important sector of the British economy at this time. Because um, the thing is, people might associate mining and other hard industries with being you know, difficult, having a lot of hardship, but they might not associate a lot of the workers actually having physical you know, disabilities. Is that fair to say? I, I think that's, that, that's fair to say. I mean, sort of a, a general idea might be that, you know, coal mining was incredibly arduous, very physically demanding, and it's due to ideas about disabled people, common popular stereotypes of disabled people somehow being unproductive or uh, unable to take a full part in working life. It might be that people assume that coal mining is especially difficult and people with physical impairments surely could not participate in such a, a difficult, uh, demanding arduous industry however one thing we found it's it's something that i think we've all all been uh, slightly surprised about is just how many disabled people are working in the mining industry and i think one thing that's worth pointing out is that there were a lot of disabled people working in the industry partly because the uh, coal mining at this time and, and actually right up until today in, in various parts of the world coal mining is an incredibly dangerous occupation uh, and occupational disease and injury are very commonplace uh, among miners, especially historically in Britain. Uh, and there are difficulties maybe quantifying that because of uh, record keeping at the time and statistics. But to give you some sense of the the scale of uh, injury, there's, I have some figures from 1865 uh, that's estimated that uh, 18,000 workers in the coal mining industry um, were killed or injured in the in the northeast of England alone so in the the coal mines of Northumberland and um, Durham now when we consider that it's been calculated that for every one fatality in the industry 100 workers uh, experienced non-fatal injuries. So when we keep those figures in mind, of that 18,000 killed or injured miners in the northeast of England in 1865, the vast, the overwhelming majority of them were involved in non-fatal injuries. So that gives you some sense of the scale of uh, occupational disability in the mining industry. So I think one reason why disabled people were working in the industry was quite simply that 
coal mining produced a lot of physical impairment. So it was, in a way, um, an everyday uh, part of uh, of working life in most pits throughout Britain during the period that we're we're interested in. That's a really interesting point because when we think about mining accidents, we think of these big. Um, big scale disasters, which obviously were tragic. But what we're talking about here is people going on living with disabilities day after day because of kind of smaller scale incidents, I suppose, or accidents. Is that right? Well, this is it. Yeah. I mean, and and it's been described by one historian as um, something, I'm I'm paraphrasing now, but something along the lines of colliery disaster in instalments. And what he's alluding to here is that the... uh, the, the the bodily the physical cost of coal mining was a kind of it was a drip drab uh, affair it was a it was a cumulative uh, wearing down of the workforce and injuring of the workforce so taken collectively there were lots of people being injured uh, in a very gradual process it wasn't just um, big explosions or you know. Uh, inundations where lots of people lost their lives there were uh, the cost of mining was was played out over a much longer time and in very sort of smaller scale incidents that maybe involved just you know one or two miners that were unlucky to be in a dangerous part of the mine and experience a roof fall or where there was a, a localized explosion where they where they were burnt or you know various other incidents involving mining equipment where they may have been injured by haulage equipment or where they've you know it could be something as simple as dropping a mandrel on their toe and you know putting a mandrel through the end of their foot or or whatever so there were lots of hazards uh in the mining industry and and, and in many cases this caused uh long-term um physical impairment in some of the workers Hmm. how have you gone about finding out about their experiences well i mean all kinds i mean there's that there are there's a wealth of material, lots of historical sources. Um, one thing we found uh, particularly useful are parliamentary reports, especially in the 19th century. There was a lot of interest in uh, the condition of mine workers in the 19th century. Uh, Victorian reformers were very concerned about um, the way, especially women and children, were treated and living uh, in colliery communities and they did a lot of research and inquiring into their condition uh, before enacting various um, protective legislative measures Uh, and the great thing for the historian is a lot of these inquiries produced you know fantastic uh, accounts of mining at various points in the 19th century and in many cases they are, in a way, I suppose, um, an early oral history survey of the mining population uh, because basically the way it worked was that you'd have royal commissioners or government officials going around to, to pit communities and you know, asking people about their experiences of mining. And it's, it's very interesting because in many cases, um, miners and, uh, and their, their relatives are, are being asked about their experiences and the uh, inquiry reports that are produced are actually producing um, or reproducing testimony from mine workers that is that is pretty much verbatim so you get a real sense of the mining workforce themselves speaking about their working conditions and their lives in mines and very often one of the themes that come up 
in these accounts is the prevalence of occupational disability and the effects that this had on uh, people's experiences uh, in coalfield communities. We've also looked at many other sources. Obviously, this is a big, big project involving a, a, a large team of researchers. Uh, we found great accounts in uh, newspaper reports, lots of uh, interesting autobiographies that give, again, the sort of miner's voice and perspective on occupational disability in the industry. Um, Are there any case studies that particularly stood out to you, I suppose? Well, there's lots. I mean, we've come across, like I said, I mean, we were, I suppose, pleasantly surprised just how many um, disabled mine workers there were in the period that we're we're looking at mine workers in terms of people that are having a disability that are still working. And I think one of the, the stories that sort of struck me when I was when I was doing this research was that of uh, 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 brothers David and Griffith Ellis who were caught up in the Gething Colliery disaster of 1865 and um, the disaster resulted in numerous deaths and obviously afterwards this is one of these big incidents that you just mentioned but afterwards obviously there was an official inquest and people trying to figure out what happened and what you know how could this be this kind of tragedy be avoided in the future. And during the inquest, um, the the case of David and Griffith Ellis, the brothers that I mentioned, was brought up. And it seems that what's happened was that uh, in the aftermath of the explosion, David and Griffith and another two miners that they were working with were seemingly quite experienced mine workers. And they realised that after an explosion... The real danger, if you hadn't been killed in the explosion, was pretty much um, being overcome by suffocating noxious gases. So they were experienced mine workers and they thought, okay, right, we need to get out of here very quickly. So the four of them who were in this work team, the two brothers and two other work colleagues, decided to do what any other sensible, experienced mine worker would have done, which is to get out of the mine as quickly as possible. So they started running along uh, the, the workings and trying to get to the surface as quickly as possible. However, in the course of the inquest, it emerged that um, Griffiths Ellis, one of the brothers, uh, had a wooden leg, so he had a mobility impairment. And it seems that what happened is in the scramble to get out to the surface as quickly as possible, Griffiths, be Griffith, because of his mobility impairment, was um, left behind. The other three men. Were, were making better progress, getting out more rapidly. And Griffith, obviously, you know, pretty worried, realising if he doesn't get out quickly, he's going to succumb to these um, deadly gases, calls down the mine. He can't see his brother anymore, but calls down to, to, to David Ellis and shouts, hey, Davey, Davey, you know, can you help me? I'm, I'm stuck. I need, to, I need to get out. I can't keep up with you guys. So David, being a loyal, loving brother, turns back to assist Griffith and well neither man ever, ever came out of the mine alive and it seems that the two surviving miners that managed to get out um, you know told the story to the inquest and you know tragically both David and Griffith um, lost their lives because of the they were overcome by noxious gases and they were they were found after the events. But I think the, the the thing for me that really struck me with that story 
was first of all the drama of the the moments, but also the fact that it in a way encapsulates many of the themes that we're trying to explore in this project. So for instance, we have you know, the first thing I suppose that's noteworthy is the fact that we are able to identify Griffith Ellis as a man who had a mobility impairment. So that's, you know, he was clearly part of the underground workforce. He was a, a disabled person or someone that we would probably consider disabled today, working underground, participating in the full working life of um, that colliery. But also the fact that his brother, David Ellis, was working close at hand. So this sort of flags up the, the perhaps a possible explanation about why disabled people were able to participate in such a physically arduous industry as coal mining. And that is the idea that, you know, he had, a, you know, obviously a very concerned, loving brother who was you know, ultimately prepared to help him to such an extent he risked his life to try and help his brother in the workplace to, to, to actually get out. So I think the story is very interesting because it's, um, it, 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 it illustrates that, you know, relatives in the coal mine industry quite often work very close together and that they were prepared to offer assistance to uh, disabled workmates, in this case, who a relative. Um, the other thing I think to say is, of course, you know, we are, we are pointing out the fact that disabled people participated in the mining labour force, but we are very, very keen not to romanticise this. You know, this is the 19th, early 20th century British coal mining industry we're talking about. This is not some kind of disabled person's utopia. This was a very hard um, occupation to follow. And I think one thing that you can conclude from the story of the Ellis brothers is that, yes, Griffith Ellis was working underground. It seems that he participated quite fully in the working life of the colliery that he was employed at. However, it seems that the fact that he had a mobility impairment may have meant he was at greater risk of further workplace injury. And in this case, you know, it was a fatality in, in, in his unfortunate circumstances. But I think it's, it's an important story because it also reminds that, yes, disabled mine workers are working underground, but this doesn't mean that their sort of, you know, life was particularly easy. And there is quite uh, strong evidence to suggest that disabled workers that were in the mining workplace were perhaps at uh, greater risk of further industry, uh, further injury. Do we get any sense of the kinds of roles that people who had suffered an accident at work would go on to do? Would they change jobs? Would there be jobs that they specifically were more likely to do? Yeah, well, it's, that's, a, that's a very good question. It, it, it really depends. I mean, there's a very diverse range of experiences that we've managed to uncover. I think that we have uncovered uh, examples of uh, miners that have gone back to their previous roles following an accident. Um, it's quite hard to quantify just because uh, very often records of the workforce from this time don't list a person's name and then say this person has a has a disability or has some kind of physical impairment. Um, but we have certainly come across accounts of um, men that were working as colliers going back to face work, actually cutting the coal. However, there are also lots of instances of men that had um, uh, 
impairments that made it difficult to return to their previous role. But it seems that because the um, the nature of the occupational spectrum in uh, mining communities was actually quite diverse, that many disabled mine workers were able to return to colliery work doing other roles that were better suited uh, to their um, their physical abilities following uh, the onset of physical impairment. So, for instance, you have um, some men that uh, maybe had trouble cutting coal, but perhaps worked as furnace keepers that would keep the the fires burning in furnaces that were very important for the ventilation systems underground. We have examples of men being assigned work um, as lamp lamp men, which was in most cases a surface job but one that involved um, being in a lamp room and maintaining uh, safety lamps that mine, mine workers used and making sure that lamps were returned and keeping a, an account of where the lamps were and uh, what was happening to them. But also we have to remember that um, despite the, the, the common idea that these mining communities were isolated and sort of cut off from uh, the wider economy and the, the, the rest of the world, there were other economic activities that mine workers that perhaps couldn't work at a colliery could do. So, for instance, we found instances of men that have taken up roles as schoolmasters or teachers, much, I must admit, to the annoyance of Victorian reformers who were claiming that many of these disabled miners that became teachers were not really qualified to be teachers, but they were nonetheless making a living uh, teaching local children. Uh, we also have uh, accounts of... Uh, men becoming uh, street peddlers, some became quite uh, respected uh, musicians and performers. So there's a whole range of jobs that uh, disabled mine workers are able to do, even if they have to uh, change role and perhaps even sort of move outside uh, the colliery workplace. Something else that your research touches on is the idea of how society at large saw disabled people, whether they saw them as a group or whether that's something that we've looked back and applied from our modern viewpoint to these people. How how were people regarded who had become disabled? Well, it's it's um, that's interesting. I think there's it depends in which context you're looking, but I I would say perhaps, and these are in some ways preliminary findings we're still in a way trying to make sense of the the very rich historical material that we've found but it seems to me that in terms of um sort of uh policy makers and medical commentators and uh other professional groups that there is a sense that disability and disabled people um gradually become regarded as some kind of problem that requires special interventions either by government or by trained professionals or by welfare agencies. So I think when you look at the whole period from 1780 through to the the mid-20th century, there is this feeling that whereas government and um, medicine is not especially concerned with physical impairments and uh, trying to remedy any perceived problems at the beginning of the period. By the end of the period, there's a whole uh, medical and, and government industry uh, that is um, established to 
to deal with what's perceived as as the problem of disability. Uh, in terms of uh, general attitudes towards disabled people, it's 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 quite difficult to answer in a nutshell. It, again, it really depends on the context. I think there are elements of uh, quite negative thinking in welfare context there's this this worry in the 19th century that you know there are people that are shirking work and that there's there's a desire to sort of weed out malingerers and this sometimes means that disabled people are regarded with suspicion especially if they are unable to earn a living because of their physical impairment so it's a very mixed picture i wouldn't say that you know that one view predominates but i guess if you're trying to sort of have a sense of some kind of trajectory or sort of narrative arc over the period very slowly disability is regarded as a problem that needs to be addressed by a whole host of actors and agencies that was daniel blackie an exhibition based on the research project from pithead to sickbed and beyond is running at the national waterfront museum in swansea until the 4th of october find out more at museumwales.ac.uk And just before we go, I'd like to tell you about a new app that we've just launched. It's called History Extra Weekly and is your indispensable guide to the week in history, including some of the best content from the History Extra website. It's free to download and is currently available on the iPad and iPhone. Search for History Extra in the App Store to give it a try. Well, that is pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time where we'll be talking about the history of canals and Regency Scandal. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.